Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and KCSA Vice President Gretchen Gailey recap KCSA's inaugural Congressional Cannabis Day Forum. Our next show in the series is titled Opioids Is Cannabis the Answer? Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our Congressional Cannabis Day Forum Opioids Panel. Hey, Gretchen. Hi, Lewis. Okay, we are recording these <laughs> intros back to back, so it's kind of funny, um, and we have to be like all peppy and woohoo. Um, and Pep is not my middle name. <laughs> no, Pep is not your middle name. The Daughters of the American Revolution is much more your your middle name. Yes, those are my people. Those are your people. Um, so the panel that we are going to be introducing from our DC day is on opioids and uh, and their relationship to cannabis and whether it's truly an exit drug or not. Um, you know, there are so many people in, in states like New Hampshire and Vermont and Ohio and across the Rust Belt and, and really all over the country, but who are suffering from opioid addiction. And a lot of people think that cannabis may be a solution to that. And uh, I was reading actually this morning through the UN drug report and drug deaths have increased 600 percent since 2005 and largely in part to the opioid um, abuse that's been going on in this country for quite some time. So it was definitely a great time for us to sit down and talk about whether or not cannabis uh, is really something that can be effective in helping wean people off opioids, um, if it can be used as alternative treatments um, for folks who are looking for some pain relief. Uh, so this p panel was great. We got to, um, I was so thrilled to have a dear friend of mine, uh, Carl Cameron, uh, formerly of Fox News, join us to moderate it. Uh, Carl and he I. He was great. He's a great guy. He and I have spent many, many days on the road. I uh, used to be a field producer for him um, at Fox News. So lots of stories of oatmeal cookies and Red Bull run rampant. Um, but a, a true pleasure was also getting to work with all the, the doctors that were on this panel and the work that they're doing. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, uh, she's the medical director of Canna Center's Wellness and Education. She was a total spitfire. Oh, yes. And she was part of also Weed the People. She's one of the doctors in that. Um, and she's uh, mainly known for pediatric oncology work. Uh, she's been working with kids uh, battling cancer, um, using cannabis as a treatment for years. Um, we also got to work with Dr. Richard Boxer, a clinical professor of urology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Um, he is also uh, part of Ianthus. Yeah, he's a board member he's of Ianthus. Chief medical officer, I want to say. Uh, and I also th I, I think he's on the board, but I could I be wrong. I want to say he, he he has wears many hats at Ianthus. Yes. Um, I mean, he's totally into the policy and trying to figure out what is the best path forward uh, legislatively. And also dosing. I mean, a big issue for him is like, how do you actually use this as a traditional? traditional medicine, but more like a Western style medicine where you know drug interactions and dosing and, and what the right indications are. I mean, he's, he is taking this from a, a pure place scientific perspective. And we are also thrilled to have um, Dr. Patricia Fry, a local girl uh, from Maryland, uh, just outside the Beltway, uh, who's the chief medical officer of HelloMD um, and working with some dispensaries out there in Maryland, who's also been working a great deal with patients um, and trying to figure out whether or not cannabis can work for them this was a really really i mean all of the panels were great um but if you have a real concern about the medicine of cannabis and not the the the, the politics or the commerce of cannabis this is really the panel for you so um again i'm gonna butch shay's line and say don't sit back lean forward it's important stuff we're talking about here so now on to the panel on opioids is cannabis the answer Welcome. Thank you, KCSA, for doing this. This is awesome. To have this type of a forum going on in HC5 is a huge deal. To be inside the Capitol, as opposed to off into one of the office buildings or off, off the Capitol grounds, is far more likely for most organizations. So to have a cannabis conference here, literally under the dome, 
is a huge, huge PR accomplishment. Uh, but that's about it. Uh, what we have to do is some serious work. And opioids is tremendously important. Uh, there's some veterans in this room. There are certainly parents. There may be parents with kids who've had problems. There may be people who have had relatives, perhaps individuals, who are using opioids or benzodiazepines and various different other legally prescribed drugs that can end up being real problem makers as opposed to problem solvers. So that's why we're today going to talk a little bit about whether or not opioids can be a solution with some people who have proven that it is so. 130 people die every day of opioids. You do the math, that's 46,000 people around the world, around the country. Uh, it's, it's becoming a cliche, and it's a sad and necessary one. We are almost losing as many people a day to opioids as we lost in 20 years during the Vietnam War. That's huge. Uh, and when mothers and fathers and servicemen and women are facing chronic pain, be it their own or their loved ones, and the medicines that are being prescribed turn them into addicts and in some cases end up leading to their deaths, we have a clear problem. So our panel today is an august one. We're going to start on the left-hand side of the aisle there with Bonnie Goldstein. Uh, she's a pediatric uh, doctor, Dr. Bonnie, excuse me, uh, a very renowned uh, advocate. She runs one of the biggest pediatric uh, practices in the country. And if you stick around for the, me the movie this afternoon of Weed the People, you will see what a force of nature she can be in her advocacy. It's truly spectacular, and she's doing some wonderful things. Uh, in, in the middle, we have uh, Dr. Patricia Fry. Uh, she's the chief medical officer at Hello Med. I should point out, by the way, that um, Ms. Goldstein, you can read this in your, in your folder, so I'm not going to read their bios, but all of these people have had uh, very, very successful careers prior to cannabis and are becoming exceedingly influential and important in the cannabis era now. Uh, and she is also, uh, and Patricia Fry is also the author of the Medical Marijuana Guide, Cannabis in Your Health, which I actually have in my, in my, on my shelf. Um, so it's a thrill for me to actually work with you here today. And finally, Dr. Richard Boxer. Uh, he's a professor of urology at UCLA, a clinical professor. Uh, and he is also uh, the medical, chief medical uh, advisor for Ianthus, which is like the fourth largest cannabis company in the U.S. right now. And he is also uh, going to help us out with a lot of the politics and policy here because he has worked with governors, he has worked with senators, he has worked with House members, he has worked with presidents, and he has worked with secretaries of the Health and Human Services uh, on a variety of issues, has been in the healthcare industry at the policy level for a great deal of time, and is now doing so for cannabis. So with that said, I'm going to ask each of you to just sort of make an opening remark about why we need to do this and why it, it, it was, A, difficult even to have this type of a forum here and what needs to happen. We have a number of questions that I want to ask later about, and actually, Bonnie, I'm going to ask you to start on this. As we were talking yesterday or the day before on the phone, um, I'd like you to just give everybody a quick rundown on what the endocannabinoid system really is and how it is in some cases, more effective and less damaging than opioids. Okay, so the endocannabinoid system is a regulatory system that already exists in your brain and body. Uh, it's been there for you know um, for thousands and thousands of years in humans. Although anybody that or any animal that has a vertebra has an endocannabinoid system, it exists to maintain the balance in your body. It is a protective mechanism. If you are, um, let's say you're a ship on the ocean and you're floating along and a wave comes along and tips you, so consider the wave infection, illness, an insult, uh, inflammation, anything like that, it tips you. Your endocannabinoid system kicks in by making cannabis-like compounds that kick in when you need them to put you back upright. Basically, that's the way you should look at it. So we have football players that get hit in the head. Their brain floods with endocannabinoids, the compounds that look just like what's in the cannabis plant. 
These are crucial molecules. We have them to protect us. What cannabis, what the cannabis plant has is very similar compounds that when you take them, they augment this system. That's basically the endocannabinoid system in a nutshell. Where is your endocannabinoid system located? Where you um, have uh, pain perception, memory, learning, uh, nausea and vomiting, appetite, emotion, motor control, cognitive function. So think about the patients that we all treat. We have patients that come in with chronic pain. They have anxiety. They have depression. They have sleep issues. They have appetite issues. You take cannabis. I'm sure you've all heard, oh, gee, you know, I feel better. It's not magic. It's science. It's where are those compounds acting? They're acting at the endocannabinoid system. I once had a parent say to me, that sounds like a lot of hippy-dippy stuff. This is not, I'm, I always tell people, I'm not smart enough to make up the endocannabinoid system. It's a system that has... Uh, was discovered only in 1988. That's why we didn't know about it. And the reason it was discovered was because scientists were looking to see how THC caused intoxicating effects, and they stumbled upon this system. If you look at when the literature really exploded, it was right around that time, 1988, 1992. Scientific research exploded looking at this system. Pharmaceutical companies all have cannabinoid programs because they're trying to exploit this system and create drugs that will work there. We don't need to recreate the wheel. We have a plant that will do it. Thank you. So that's the, that's the baseline of the science. Uh, and there are sort of two classes of people right now who are really, really in need of cannabinoid therapy. Kids with a variety of chronic diseases and people who have had serious, serious trauma, and specifically vets. Uh, just a short while ago, I had a conversation with somebody who talked about, you know, you go over there, you get blown up, you come home, you've got chronic pain, and the first thing they do is they whack you with opioids and benzos, which mixed is a really, really bad doctor. Um, and yet, uh, and you know, tough, patriotic American men and women who don't want to come across like a stoner might resist to it, and then they find out, oh my God, this has changed my life. I can sleep, I can eat, and I can have a life again. Uh, speaking of pediatrics, uh, we talked earlier about whether or not you could talk a little bit about what's going on with kids in your realm of things, Patricia, and uh, that's really, I think, where there's a tremendous amount of public sympathy and empathy and we got to move that into policy and politics. So, Patricia, give us your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, like Bonnie, I'm also <clears throat> trained and board certified in pediatrics, although I see children and adults, but about 20% of my practice is pediatrics. And um, most of the, the conditions that I see are seizure disorders, uh, symptoms associated with autism, um, both the core symptoms of autism as well as the coexisting conditions that a lot of autistic patients have, and uh, chronic pain. I also see a fair number of mental health patients, even in the pediatric realm, that are referred to me by mental health providers. And these kids have extremely high anxiety or depression that's not responsive to pharmaceuticals or the pharmaceutical adverse effects um, prevent them from continuing. Um, I would say that most of the patients I see are seizure disorder, but the chronic pain patients um, have really b benefited from cannabis. I see a number of connective tissue disorders, most um, specifically Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Those kids have chronic joint pain, <coughs> pain throughout their body. We treat migraines, um, uh, chronic daily headaches with cannabis. Um, we have patients with mitochondrial disorders where nobody really understands what's wrong with them, but they are very sensitive, pain sensitive. Uh, we see autoimmune illnesses like psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis in children, um, lupus, and uh, Lyme's disease. And a lot of these patients um, have a very... Um, uh, poor quality of life. They are on a lot of medications. They often come in with a laundry list of medications, and they don't feel, and they still don't feel good. I had a um, one particular young man with psoriatic, with severe psoriatic arthritis, who had a lot of flare-ups, um, uh, colitis, which is also inflammation in the colon. 
a lot of anxiety, he was put on an antipsychotic for his anxiety, he gained 40 pounds, he was depressed, he was missing school. We started him on, on cannabis and over the course of six months, he weaned off of the antipsychotic, he weaned off of the opioids, um, he went a year with no flare-ups, his colonoscopy normalized, he's gone off to college, and he um, lost all the weight that he gained from the antipsychotic, which was really what made him force his mother to bring him to see me. But it really can make a big difference Cannabis um, is safe in children, especially the way we use it in, in medicine. We are not using high doses of THC. THC in low doses can be very be beneficial when combined with CBD. Um, the CBD mitigates any intoxicating effect of the, of the THC. It also mitigates any concerns of the effects of THC on cognition and memory. We just don't see it in the dosing that we, that we use in children. Um, those, those adverse effects are typically seen in adolescents who may be self-medicating. Oftentimes I tell people the younger a child starts using cannabis um, on their own, the more likely there is an underlying condition that hasn't been diagnosed and treated like depression, anxiety, PTSD, attachment disorder. So it works very well in children and, and we don't see any particular adverse effects from using it. And, and now, Dr. Boxer, the man of policy and politics. How do we get this thing rolling? Well, the, f the first thing, um, as Bonnie was, was talking, I was thinking about how people in the country, around the world, can honestly say, how can one plant do so many things? I mean, heal people in many, many w ways, whether it's in the GI system or in, in the brain, and really, if you look at the laundry list of, of, of conditions that cannabis has been recommended for, it looks like basically it goes from soup to nuts. And I'm a urologist, and so I know the difference. There's, there really is remarkable how you can affect improvement and change in, the, in, the, in a person if you just use the, the product uh, in, a, in a reasonable way. The, the politics are really dating back to when, you know, when people thought that with Reefer Madness or other, uh, other um, movies and, and policies that were started uh, nearly 100 years ago to, to demonize anyone who was either uh, considering using it, using it, or particularly if they were, uh, they were considered to be possibly selling it. And so with the, with the um, draconian uh, bills that were brought out in the 70s and 80s, which effectively caused people of color more than others to be um, to be considered to be criminals. It it resulted in an enormous backlash of of individuals who were saying that we have to make sure that our communities would not be affected or infected with the product. And so, in my mind. The way to, to get beyond that is through education, and which has really been, I think, quite effective because now two-thirds of the nation believes that, that certainly medical cannabis should be legalized. And, and so through education and maturation of thought, it, it, can go, it, it is going through the political process in a more positive way, and not even more, but definitely a positive way. Each of the, um, each of the political candidates for president, including Donald Trump, believe that, that cannabis should be uh, legalized, or at least um, on, on the Trump side, he's, he doesn't seem to be resisting it. Uh, and so the, there are various acts that are going through Congress, which are, I think, um, Going to be taking bites out of the uh, out of the, the fact that it's illegal. I I don't think it's going to be a sweeping change, but if you look at the acts that are going through, there are several that are going through on behalf of the veterans, which I've I've worked in three veterans' hospitals over my career, and the mere thought of of having these in, these men and women who were heroes in every respect 
be hurt um, either psychologically or physically, and then brought back, come, come back to our country and having to re, a, a potent and effective medication being refused to them is, is um, it's criminal. Uh, I've, see, I've seen thousands and thousands of veterans, and, they, and not every veteran needs to, to have access to cannabis, but also not every veteran should not be allowed to go through the process that they're going through without the possibility of cannabis. And so uh, the statistic that, that Carl mentioned relative to, to the number of people who, are, who have died is chilling. Um, actually, I recently wrote a, a paper on this, and uh, I went to the, uh, you know, the, the references that I needed to, and I found out that from, from the year 2000 to the year 2017, well, to now, really, more people have died of, of addiction overdose than all the men and women who died in all the wars the United States has been in since 1775. It's astounding, and that we just simply don't, you know, we, we continue to do the same thing over and over again, which, of course, Einstein defined as insanity. So what we need to do um, is, of course, you can talk to your congressperson and to your senator if that'll do any good, because, unfortunately, there is partisan politics that prevents good communication. But over and over and over again, the idea of th that this that the use of cannabis which has never killed anybody to to have it substitute for opioid which opioid products or addiction products that kill 75,000 people a year 42,000 possibly from from opioids alone but the other addictions as well it is it is incumbent upon us as um, Americans and really people of, of, of the world to allow the product and the medicine and the, uh, to be to be utilized in an in an effective way. And the last thing is that I can't imagine any reason why we don't with that the federal government prevents research for um, on cannabis. It's just astounding to me that there's no harm in finding out what's really in the effect of every one of those chemicals or or most of the chemicals within the plant. Having it on Schedule 1 prevents universities like I am at, at UCLA, or around the country to be able to honestly look at the, what is in the, the plant and whether or not that product or that chemical can be valuable. What is the harm in finding out? That is, what, that is really, I think, criminal. We're going to take questions in just a couple of minutes, but I have one question for the panel in general. Uh, what is the... What is the state of efficacy of, of cannabis uh, directly related to the types of things that some opioids are prescribed for? In other words, is, are, there, are there overlaps where cannabis can be a replacement as opposed to a weaning it off kind of a thing? Can I? So I've prepared a list of um, some the summaries of research. So if anybody wants this, come up afterwards and just hand me your email, and I'd be happy to send it to you. Um, uh, so cannabinoids and opioids have what's called acute analgesic synergy. That means they work together. We now know that the opioid receptor and the cannabinoid receptor form a complex, and they can be, you can take advantage of this complex by using both to get additive synergy with no increase in respiratory depression. Remember, why do people die from opiates? They stop breathing. When you add cannabis to an opiate, the vast majority of patients actually reduce their opiate use. Or, uh, most, it, the latest report is 50% reduction of opiates. That takes them out of that area where they may stop breathing. In chronic pain, uh, patients on opioid therapy, cannabis does not make the opioid levels in the blood go up. This has been studied. In states with medicinal cannabis laws, and somebody, I think uh, the representative this morning that opened the conference mentioned this, opioid overdoses drop by an average of 25%. The longer the state has medical cannabis laws, the larger this effect is. California, my home state where I practice, has 33% less opiate deaths when compared to a state that does that has, and, and I will say, 
Many of the states that say they have access do not have access. There are, I'm sure there's people in the audience can, can attest to this, where they live, even though it says uh, uh, on paper that there's medical cannabis, there isn't. Um, what we know is, um, let's see, cannabis is, use is associated with not only a reduction in opioid consumption, but also in, benzodi in benzodiazepine consumption. And remember, that combination is deadly. Benzos plus opiates, are, that's a real uh, big problem for people. And often that will um, increase the risk of respiratory depression. Medicare and Medicaid prescription costs. I mean, if we need to talk about money to get this through, let's talk about that. Medicare and Medicaid prescription costs are substantially lower in states with cannabis laws. That's been, there was a, a survey done, and they looked at that. The CDC came out in 2016 and basically said chronic pain should not be treated with opioids. But what are we doing? We're still prescribing opioids, okay? Uh, let's see. Uh, CBD also alleviates the anxiety that leads to drug craving. So if you have CBD in the mix, it will often decrease drug craving, allowing somebody to wean off opiates. Getting off opiates is not easy. Um, and then the last thing, too, uh, cannabinoids also have been shown to alleviate withdrawal. So I have patients that come in and they find that if they've tried to get off opiates and they haven't been able to, adding cannabis to the mix not only helps treat the original condition for which they got opiates for, but also it helps them get off the opioids a little bit quicker and a little bit easier. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, another aspect of chronic pain is anxiety and depression. And people think that, that anxiety and depression make people think that their pain is worse when actually anxiety and depression actually um, signal the release of inflammatory mediators that actually cause pain. If those emotions aren't addressed during the pain treatment, you're, you're still chasing your tail. The, um, the other um, um, aspect is that the CBD and THC both are uh, mood elevating and anxiolytic, so they treat anxiety. They are also anti-inflammatories, and they protect the, the lining of the stomach and the intestines so that you're, you're treating pain with um, something that would take seven or eight medications. You're, you're replacing the NSAIDs, you're replacing the benzodiazepines, you're replacing the opioids, you're replacing the antidepressant, you're replacing the Lyrica, which most of the time doesn't work for neuro neuropathy or neuropathic pain. And you can treat this with, you can treat all these conditions with just one compound, um, a, a cannabis product. And so I, I have about a, a patient panel of about 2,500 um, patients. 40% of my patients are chronic pain. And I trained in anesthesia, so I do see adults as well. And um, I would say within three to four months, 60 to 70% of those patients have reduced their opioid usage by uh, 60 to 75%. It does, it's even better than 50%, which is what the, um, the literature cites. It, is, um, it, it has really been life-changing for a lot of these patients. The other thing that it addresses, because of that crosstalk between the cannabinoid and, and opioid receptors, um, cannabis immediately um, changes the tolerance to opioids that a lot of patients have developed. And patients who are on chronic opioids almost all have what's called um, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, so that the opioids are actually making them more sensitive to pain. So by reducing that opioid dose, even for patients that you can't get them off completely, um, I had a patient who was on 1,500 milligrams of methadone a, a month, and with adding cannabis it, within a few months, and that's a slow wean with methadone, it's very tricky, he was down to 100 milligrams wow. a month. It's, out, it's, it's, it's really astounding, the, the synergy. The, um, just a moment ago, a study came out that I, um, says that a study finds CBD effective in treating heroin addiction. The, um, it, is the more people study the effects of cannabis, the more um, improvements can, are found for addiction in, in addiction medicine. And this particular study was, was done by Yasmin Hurd, who is a great researcher in New York. Um, but it demonstrates, once again, as far as the, what's going on in the government, the government, the federal government, prevents any kind of research done for the, 
the, the showing the betterment of cannabis and only, only funds research showing the dangers of cannabis. And so when people, good people, say, well, there's never been any good studies that demonstrate that cannabis is effective, there's no long-term or short-term or clinical um, studies, it's because they aren't allowed. So we, we, are, we rely upon studies done in Israel or, or other, or uh, particularly Israel, but other countries as well, the, uh, demonstrating that there is a positive effect. Once it, the, the government releases our brilliant researchers around the country to demonstrate whether or not it is effective, then we'll know. And um, we, anecdotally, we know because we've seen cases like, like Patricia or Bonnie just mentioned. But, it's, but in, until we have bona fide, great clinical and basic science studies, we won't know with certainty. And that's very important. We have a guest to join us, uh, the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Ohio. Ohio, excuse me, Representative Joyce is here. Sorry, sir. Come right, come, Pennsylvania, my mistake. Come right on in. There actually is a Dr. Joyce that just got elected from uh, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> which is wonderful because on top of being a tremendous asset, he's also a dermatologist, so it uh, saves me the, the fight when I'm going at home for it. But good afternoon. I'm just glad to see you all here <clears throat> today and uh, talking about some of the leading issues in the cannabis space. And I want to thank you for including me today. This is a great group, that, and I appreciate the chance to participate even in a brief capacity. I'm stuck all day in an uh, appropriations hearing that uh, they say it's going to be uh, quick when you start, but it just for whatever reason never seems to be. I'm proud to be a leader in the effort to protect the rights of the states across the country, like Ohio, that have found it uh, fit to introduce legislation in those states to make uh, cannabis medically legal in some way, shape, or form. <clears throat> vast majority of states have done that. 47 states, including uh, D.C., Guam, <clears throat> excuse me, or Puerto Rico, permit their uh, residents to either use cannabis or, or CBD. Yet, as you're aware, there means a massive discrepancy between how federal law treats uh, cannabis and, and how the states have done it. And the federal uh, government's current policy hurts legitimate uh, businesses, diverse law enforcement efforts that needed elsewhere, and helps stifle important medical research. It's important that we, we, that we respect the relationship between uh, doctors and their patients. And when I, being on the Appropriations Committee, when I was first there, uh, it was brought to my attention. This was in 13, and it was still only medicinally legal in California. But Sam Farr, who was a member of, of the committee, was arguing on behalf of the doctors in California, being unable to prescribe cannabis to, uh, at the VA hospitals to, for patients suffering from PTSD. And I thought, well, that, that's, that's nuts. You're going to force people who have legitimate issues that doctors are making these calls on to go out in the black market and, and, and do this uh, when you've already passed it because you're saying that it's medically legal. So I started to watch uh, and, and take more of an interest in these things. And if, it's, you know, if a state has made it, uh, <clears throat> a state has passed uh, the statute or the voters have passed something to allow doctors to do it, <clears throat> and a doctor thinks that's uh, important, that's the best treatment for his patient, then who are we in the federal government to get between the doctor and that patient? And if it's a cancer patient, you know, my father died of cancer, and, and just to watch him, you know, and think that for one moment, that would have allowed him to sit up and have a decent day and, and have something to eat, God bless, who are we to make that call? So it, it, I, I just I couldn't understand why the federal government should get in the middle. And with Ohio being ground zero for the opioid crisis, I'm glad that we're finally having this discussion on whether or not there's been considered effective pain relief because, uh, you know, what we're suffering now is part of really a 40-year uh, cycle. And it started back in the 80s when we started to reimburse hospitals based upon those stupid smiley faces. And if you had, you know, if you were happy, you know, you got better reimbursement. So, you know, the doctor gave you pills and you're feeling happy and you're not complaining and, and he's getting better reimbursement. Well, you know, that's come home to roost. And meanwhile, we don't have that same issue with cannabis. In, in 2016, the Minnesota Department of Health found that a large proportion of patients on either pain medications, when they started me taking medical cannabis, were able to reduce the use of other pain medications. More than 62% were either allowed or were able to reduce or eliminate opioid usage after six months. Those are great stats. We should grab onto that. Ohio, unfortunately, being at ground zero, we're putting up with that epidemic every day. 
And we're losing many kids, not just kids, people as old as me, uh, and I'm pretty damn old. Uh, we're, we're losing every day as well. But just last year, the uh, peer-reviewed medical journal published by the American Medical Association conducted research on the association between the implementation of state medical cannabis laws and opioid prescribed under Medicare Part D. The research found that prescriptions filled for all opioids decreased by 2.11 million daily doses per year when a state instituted a medical cannabis law, and prescriptions for all opioids decreased by 3.742 million daily doses per year when medical cannabis dispensaries open. Unfortunately, despite research like this, there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about the industry and the good work that all of you are doing. That's why it's so important for all of you to come, continue to come here on the Hill and uh, lobby and discuss these issues with your members of Congress. Because, you know, uh, I, I could tell you that from my little bit of time here that this is a place that moves glacially slow. <laughs> but when it comes to cannabis, I finally see some movement. And the movement has been uh, swift it, probably not as swift as some would like it, but it, it's moving along in the right direction. And I was so proud to stand with, with my partner, Earl Blumenauer, and, and to put out the States Act, which is a bipartisan, bicameral event. It was received with, with uh, great applause. And uh, President Trump has even indicated that if that bill that we put out gets to him, he would sign it. So in, in this town, that's, that's, that's moving. And it couldn't do it without, and we're not doing it by ourselves, and we couldn't do it without you. We have to continue this daily work to get out the, the, all the people on the Hill and the research that you're working on and making that available to folks here on the Hill so we continue to feed the, uh, the real story and correct the misinformation that's been taking place. The States Act would clarify cannabis uh, policy on a federal level, allow states to determine their own policies without fear of federal <clears throat> repercussion, give us an opportunity how uh, Congress uh, can implement real reform. And I continue to look forward to working with all of you and listening to my colleagues in the House, asking about their concerns and getting them the information they need so they can best answer the questions we move forward in addressing the federal government's outdated and ineffective policies. I want to thank you all for what you're doing. God bless you all, and may we continue this fight together. Team Cannabis. So we're open for questions for those of you who'd like to address the panel and perhaps the member before he leaves, unless he's going to make the door before we can get a hand up. And there are a couple of mics, so just go ahead and line up if you'd like to, or just wave a hand and yell. Actually, I have a question for the physicians. Given that the FDA hasn't regulated cannabis in any way, how do you deal with dosing? Um, because when you prescribe anything, you've had trials and you know if this is what your weight is, this is what the, the percentage you should have. How does that work with cannabis? Well, cannabis um, interacts with our endocannabinoid system, as Dr. Goldstein had, had, had illustrated, and everyone's system is a little bit different. We, there are a lot of different varieties of these um, receptors. So, um, so cannabis doesn't work the same way for every person. Um, it, it doesn't have the same effects for every person, and some people will respond to very small doses. Some need larger doses. Sometimes it depends on what <clears throat> we're treating. Because, we, it, because of the scheduling, we have not had the double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled trials to actually march out to see if there are any real dosing um, criteria that we even need to use. So most of us approach cannabis by starting with very small amounts and gradually increasing the dose until you either um, get reach the effect you're looking for or you're running either into adverse effects or you're not getting as good an effect because um, CBD in particular has what we call a biphasic effect. If you don't take enough, it doesn't work very well, but if you take too much, it doesn't work very well. So there's a, um, a, a, a case of infantile convulsions that was written by a Dr. William O'Shaughnessy in 1843, and it is the perfect example of what we still do today. We start with little teeny tiny amounts, and we gradually increase until we see symptoms improved. So there are no dosing recommendations per se. I'd like to just state that most of the states do require testing. So you're in the ballpark when you get something. It's not like it used to be. So in California, when I started doing this in 2011, there was no testing. 
So you could buy something and it would say, might say 10 milligrams on the label, but sometimes it was more often one milligram, it was very, not very often 50. Um, but now with any time something is um, tested and labeled, it's within the ballpark and you're probably not gonna go wrong. I think for the uh, most part, most people figure out what their dose is by starting low and, and we say start low and go slow. For pediatrics, it is a little bit different, and that's why children should have medical supervision when they're using cannabis. Uh, that, that's a, a, an important point, and what drives physicians who are not familiar with cannabis completely nuts, because the patient, this is a patient-derived de um, and demanded treatment, and they go to their physician, and the physician has not a clue. Uh, everything that physicians learn is basically in milligrams. That is, you take 500 milligrams of, of an antibiotic three times a day or once a day or whatever, and it, that's their mindset. And medical schools haven't taught anything to any doctors about cannabis at all, and, <clears throat> or, the, or the cannabinoid system. And so, so th this is an inhibitor of advancement, and that's, once again, why research is necessary. I, I've been working for months and months on a dosing guide try to understand based on research around the world, what is the best dose to start or the ratios of one to one or two to one, whatever for THC versus CBD. Um, what, what, is there a method by which we can make some kind of sense out of all this? It's, it's been a Herculean task and uh, I'm not Hercules. So um, I'm, I'm, I've been working on it and hopefully we'll be able to get something out, but not really effective or the, that is universally accepted until there's more research. And we have to remember everybody responds differently. We all know people who love cannabis and people who hate cannabis and everybody in between. So you have to remember your endocannabinoid system is genetically coded, how you metabolize it, how you absorb it, how you excrete it, how you respond to it. So it has to be individual, um, pay, what we call uh, patient-determined self-titrating, which is not the method for pharmaceuticals, right? For pharmaceuticals, we have milligram recommendations, and you kind of target that. We have to remember that when you take cannabis, you're taking something that's polypharmaceutical by definition. It's got multiple compounds. How you're going to respond to those compounds is unique to you. I get a lot of calls, oh, what, how do you treat Parkinson's? Well, who's Parkinson's and what stage of Parkinson's and what other medications? There's all these other criteria that you have to look at if you're gonna be a responsible, um, uh, give responsible advice. So remember, it's not one size fits all in any way, shape or form. It is different than pharmaceuticals and as doctors, if you try to make it fit like a pharmaceutical or work like a pharmaceutical, you're gonna be disappointed in the way your patients respond. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very true. I do have a question, but first I want to say that I am a testament to the fact that you can wean off of all opioids and benzodiazepines with cannabis therapy. Um, I was a pain patient for 18 years, a breast cancer survivor, and in with careful weaning, I was able to get completely off of narcotics, completely off of benzodiazepines, completely off my pain medications, and my muscle relaxers. So I'm standing here today using two milliliters of cannabis oil with high CBD full spectrum and a cannabis formulation from Maryland to help me sleep at night. So that's all I take now. Good for you. And I've been Great. fine for over two years. No upping of dosages or anything like that. So, you know, it's an amazing thing. And as a nurse, you know, I find this to be an incredible thing that we need to make sure that people know that this is an option. My question though is with a lot of my patients, I'm dealing with patients that are trying to get off of addictive substances. And there's a lot of heroin that's being uh, knocked down to Suboxone. And the argument that they come to me with is this is just the drug-to-drug -drug substitution. What is a better way that I can talk to them and say, well, no, it's not really? <laughs> well, I think that um, most people don't <clears throat> sit around and think, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a heroin addict. Um, I think generally people um, start self-medicating for a number of different reasons. And um, a lot of those underlying conditions um, they, they feel better, they, they, they start using a medication, they feel better, that starts stimulating the reward system before you know it, we have an addiction. But with cannabis, the, the beauty of it is, is that you can use it without any intoxication or, or um, impairment. It addresses a lot of the underlying mental health issues that, that 
kind of draw people to to um, drugs or, or to misuse medications in the first place. So you're treating anxiety, you're treating their depression, you're treating their stress, you're helping them to let go of um, painful memories. A lot of these patients have um, childhood trauma that is unbelievable, and um, and it's and it's okay. And if they if they get some respite from that trauma, that psychological trauma from using the cannabis, and if it is a little intoxicating, um, um, if it helps them feel better, then that's okay. But the cannabis isn't um, necessarily replacing the, the heroin or the opioid, but I think that they do well with it. One, because of that crosstalk, it, it kills the cravings, and it addresses a lot of those underlying psychological issues that may lead um, a person to misuse drugs in the first place. Oh, absolutely. It's an anti-emetic. It, it takes care of the muscle spasms. It takes care of the appetite. It helps them sleep. It um, relieves their anxiety. It treats the pain that they might experience with a, with an opioid withdrawal. It really touches on all of the, um, I can't think of any withdrawal symptoms that the cannabis would not help. One of the ways that I like to explain is that they started using drugs often, as um, Dr. Fry said, for a reason. Uh, self-medicating. They may have uh, an underlying endocannabinoid def deficiency or dysfunction, and now there's a lot of research looking at endocannabinoid deficiency or dysfunction as root cause of anxiety, depression, autism. So what I often tell people is instead of band-aiding the situation with opiates, we're actually now going to treat root cause and I think that's a, a easier way is that you treat it, you pick the wrong drug to medicate with, mm -hmm. right? And so if you can take the right, it's take the right drug to fix the endocannabinoid problem, it will also help you get off the opioid. Thank you all so much for all the work that you're doing and educating us today. I'm trying to pass a bill in Maryland to allow opioids as a substitute, so patients who just uh, had a surgery or something can take their opioid prescription to a dispensary to allow access. They've done it in several northern states as well as Illinois. Um, the pushback that I've gotten from a couple people is that there isn't a lot of research about opioid to be able to use, deal with that temporary severe pain. Um, and I'm just curious if you're aware of any research as well as any anecdotal stories that can kind of help me educate people to get that bill passed. Well, I have patients that come in for their pre-op certifications. Um, they do not want to use opioids, and if they do want, if they are going to use them, they want to use as little as possible for as brief a time as possible. I would say anecdotally, I have maybe 20 patients that I've seen this year who have come in pre-op for sh things like shoulder surgery or yes. knee replacement, hip replacement. Um, I even have a, a cousin who's a fairly well-known pediatrician who's um, not in the cannabis arena who had some concerns about it until she broke her foot and uh, was really concerned about the oxycodone and the, the constipation and the other adverse effects. And um, I helped her with some with some medic with some CBD and THC, and she did beautifully. Um, I have pa other patients who will come back and say, "Yeah, I had my surgery; everything went great. I only took um, two of the oxycodones. I told the doctor, don't give me more than five. You know, it." So the patients are are being very proactive in this and coming in and getting their. Unfortunately, certifications in, in Maryland now take almost two months because it takes that long to be um, to get your patient number. But if they can plan ahead, they can certainly. We, we and I I have not seen a problem with treating acute pain. The issue I think the question is is how effective cannabis is is in treating acute pain. As a, we always talk about chronic pain, <clears throat> but. Um, that pain signal is the pain signal, and the cannabis will interrupt that as well as um, modulate the inflammatory response at the surgical site. So it, it's been very effective. And there's well, no reason patients can't do both right. the first few days. We know that the longer you're on opiate, the more likely you are to become addicted to it. So I educate my patients two to three days on the opiates and then try to limit that and switch over, you know, overlap and wean towards the cannabis. 
um, even if you can't pass it as you wish to pass it, why don't you try at least to pass pilot studies so that the, there'll be um, funding or at least um, um, permission for, for, let's say, in Maryland, it can, you know, Johns Hopkins or someplace where they can, they can do pilot studies to find out exactly what you're talking about. That kind of permission, that kind of um, legislation could go a long way in, in the long run and helping people in the short run. And I believe Go Governor Hogan is signing a bill or just signed a bill that will allow for uh, medical research within the state and University of Maryland School of Pharmacy is um, developing a, a master's curriculum for the pharmacy um, students. So there are some opportunities there. We are just about out of time, folks. Uh, to the extent that you have had your uh, curiosities peaked with some of these discussions and, to, and trying to sit, figure out with your bosses and or those of you who are staffers or here on the Hill or in DC, the ball has not moved fast enough and there needs to be a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, stick around for the rest of today's presentations because it gets better and better and you do want to watch the movie Weed the People later in the afternoon. It is a very profound story, and you will not forget the, what, what you see there in terms of the way in which particularly young kids can have their lives saved with cannabis. Uh, that's it for us. Thank you very much for being here. The next panel is up in about seven minutes. And that was our panel on opioids. Um, again, I want to give a special shout-out to Gretchen Gailey, Nick Opich, and McKenna Miller for helping KCSA pull off the very first cannabis event on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. It was a big undertaking, and Gretchen had to do a lot of heavy lifting in negotiating with Speaker Pelosi's office to allow us access, to, to allow us to show the Ricky Lake documentary. Um, so major kudos to our team. Um, KCSA would not be where it is today were it not for the people who work with us. So with that, if you would like to chat with us and engage with us on Instagram or Twitter, you can do so at Twitter. It's the handle is at the underscore green rush. And on Instagram, the handle is at the green rush underscore podcast. And it's really annoying that we couldn't get both handles to be the same, but such is life. If you want to send us e email, you want to send me hate mail, you can do that at the uh, greenrush at kcsa.com. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher. That, Shay, is one take, my friend. One take.